This is Shelter, a podcast series looking at housing insecurities in the time of pandemic and the role academic and religious institutions can play in partnering with the community to seek solutions. I'm Scott Gurian. And I'm Diana Molina. Thanks for joining us. So, Diana, this is the first episode of our new show, and I'm guessing some of our listeners might be confused about our theme music. So why don't we start there and explain a little bit more about what they're hearing and what this series is about? Sure. That was a sort of updated or reimagined version of On the Banks of the Old Raritan, which is the Rutgers University anthem. And the reason it's our theme is because this show is being co-produced by Rutgers and the New Brunswick Theological Seminary. We're based here in central New Jersey, but while the issues we'll be examining are grounded in our local experience dealing with shelter, housing, and the COVID-19 pandemic, we think they also have more universal significance. So even if you don't live anywhere near New Jersey or have anything to do with Rutgers, the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, or the city of New Brunswick, where these institutions are located, we hope you'll find this podcast interesting and get something out of it. That's right. So to set the scene, this project grew out of a phrase many of us kept hearing from politicians and members of the media back in the early days of the pandemic. In an effort to curb the spread of the coronavirus, COVID-19, governments are turning to shelter-in-place policies. These shelter new orders direct all individuals to shelter at their place of residence. Officials are urging you to stay inside your home as much as possible. Certainly, New York police have begun enforcing the mayor's shelter-in-place order for the entire city. The mayor breaking this new announcement that he's telling basically everybody in the city of Hoboken to shelter in place, and they don't want any more... And this all raised an important question. Just what does it mean to shelter in place when you have no shelter or when the place where you're living fails to provide basic levels of safety, privacy and comfort? Like what if you lived in an overcrowded homeless shelter or a cramped prison cell? Or what if you were one of the nearly 10,000 people here in New Jersey who lacked permanent housing at the beginning of this pandemic? Over the coming episodes, we'll hear a variety of perspectives about what shelter means to people from different walks of life, how COVID-19 has affected them, and how institutions like universities and churches can do a better job addressing the housing crisis and working in partnership with their local communities. But let's begin by laying out some statistics to set the scene for everything we're going to discuss. According to researchers at the University of Chicago and Notre Dame, at the height of the pandemic, the impacts of coronavirus caused nearly 8 million Americans to fall into poverty, the largest and fastest spike since the government began tracking poverty 60 years ago. And while the federal eviction moratorium helped millions of renters stay in their homes, many still fell through the cracks. A new report from Homeless Advocates says COVID has helped to propel the shelter population to record numbers. At one point last winter in New York City, for instance, there were more than 20,000 single adults sleeping in city-run homeless shelters, which was the highest that's ever been recorded in recent years. Now, to be fair, there were a number of factors contributing to that. But Experts who track the problem say it's clear that coronavirus played a pretty significant role. And even for people who didn't have it quite that bad, the loss of income they experienced caused them to fall way behind on their rent and sink deep into debt. And here's the problem with that. Those eviction moratoriums I mentioned a moment ago were just a temporary solution. 
Court records here in New Jersey show that over the past year and a half of the pandemic, landlords across the state have filed paperwork to begin eviction proceedings for nearly 70,000 tenants. So it's only a matter of time before people start to be forced out. Some experts are warning that it's a ticking time bomb and that record levels of homelessness may be on the horizon. But even if that's somehow averted, a lot of the damage has already been done. I mean, anyone who lives here knows that this is a pretty expensive part of the country, and like many places, there was a severe shortage of affordable housing even before the pandemic. So in order to save money, some of the most economically struggling residents were living in tight quarters with lots of other people, like unrelated roommates or multiple generations of the same family. That's, of course, exactly the sort of situation you want to avoid when you're being told to practice social distancing. So it's not hard to imagine that the housing crisis may have caused COVID-19 to spread farther and faster than it otherwise would have. Later on in this series, we'll delve deeper into what this pandemic has been like for members of our community in various sorts of living situations. But first, we thought it might be helpful to give all of you some background on the genesis of the shelter project and the thinking that's gone into it. So to help with that, we reached out to three members of our editorial team to provide some valuable context and I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Colin Yeager, and I teach in the English department at Rutgers University. And I'm also the director of an interdisciplinary humanities center at Rutgers called the Center for Cultural Analysis. I live in Highland Park, which is the town right across the river from New Brunswick. And I'm good friends and also attend the church where the pastors have been over the past 15 years deeply involved in a whole set of issues around social justice, including, but not limited to, housing. I am Nathan Jeremy Brink. I am the Feeks Assistant Professor of the History of Global Christianity at New Brunswick Theological Seminary. NBTS's mission and identity is really rooted in trying to be a seminary, an institution of theological higher education that prepares women and men for ministry, especially in metro urban settings, especially with an eye towards anti-racism. And so throughout the curriculum, we try to have a view to social justice and theological education that would inform churches and nonprofits and our graduates who serve in those places to do the work of advocacy and care. My name is Kristen obrazel Colfan, and I am an assistant teaching professor at the History Department at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and coordinate the public history program there. By training, I'm a 19th century historian of poverty and social movements and uh, slavery and punishment, and I've written extensively on the criminalization of houselessness throughout early American history and specifically vagrancy law. I've had many really fascinating and wonderful conversations with people experiencing houselessness in New Brunswick and have been consistently fascinated by the different resourceful ways that they use the spaces and tools and resources around them which is one of the reasons why I think the shelter project is so interesting and potentially powerful to bring together all of these different conversations and methods of creating space for engagement and conversation and advocacy with these communities. 
We asked Colin to tell us the story of how the Shelter Project first came about. We had been talking to the Luce Foundation, their theology program in particular, about applying for a grant. And the conversations were sort of stalled. And then the first wave of COVID happens. And our contact at Luce sent me an email and said, hey, we're suddenly shifting directions and we're going to be devoting a lot of resources to emergency grants. Do you think that you could bring your people together and talk about an emergency grant that we might be able to give you? So really a switch in direction away from academic programming and something much more directly about, you know, just public facing aimed immediately at the communities that were being hit hardest by that first wave So the first thing I did is I called my friend, Seth Copperdale, who is one of the co-pastors at the Reformed Church of Highland Park and has founded, among other nonprofits, the Affordable Housing Corporation. And they've been providing housing and wraparound social services to a variety of folks for a number of years. Women aging out of foster care, homeless veterans, people reentering after being involved with the criminal justice system. And so they have a lot of relationships with landlords, and they themselves are a landlord and own over 50 properties in central New Jersey. So I called Seth and I said, uh, if you had $120,000, what would you do <laughs> at this moment? And he said, housing, 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 housing. You can do all the social services you want for people, but if they don't have a safe place and a secure place and a place where they feel comfortable to sleep at night, you're just throwing your money away. Central New Jersey is a really expensive place to house people, so it's a real challenge around here. Colin thought that was interesting, so he reached out to his colleagues Nathan and Kristen to work on drafting the grant proposal. Nate remembers getting the call and being excited by the idea that they could distribute this money quickly to those who needed it the most. It just felt like a great fit right away. Pastor Seth gave us the sort of rally cry which guides their work of housing first. People need a place to stay that's safe. And that in the time of the pandemic seemed like the most basic articulation of the human right to shelter. And so this felt like a way that we could prioritize the most basic needs and figure out later how we think about it, how we respond to it, how we sustain advocacy and teaching. All those pieces came after we said, let's pool our interests as rapidly as we can to serve our neighbors, which to me is the enduring and most important aspect of this project. Here we have monies that normally would be spent on academic research that were gonna be used to help people and put people's most basic needs first. Last spring, the Luce Foundation, through their Theology and Religion program, gave $150,000 to the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, where Nathan is a professor. The seminary, in turn, passed most of that money on to the Affordable Housing Corporation Pastor Seth Directs, which provided direct financial assistance to more than 120 people, helping 32 households secure housing in the middle of the pandemic. The grant also assisted some recipients with case management support, including legal and social services related to domestic violence, early release from prison, and immigration. We'll hear more about all this in the future. But today, we want to focus on this theme of shelter that's at the heart of this whole project. And to get us started, we asked Kristen to give us a simple definition. I would define shelter as one of the basic human rights because... 
Your ability to survive is based off of your ability to have a safe place to sleep and prepare your food and conduct basic rituals of, you know, personal hygiene. So I think of shelter as kind of the core pillar that props up your ability to do everything else, contribute to society, have relationships, care for your body, care for your mind. And that's what distinguishes it from a home or any other specific form of housing. She says it's great to think about the sort of aspirational goal of making sure everyone has a home, like a permanent, comfortable place they could call their own. But we're not even at that point. First, we need to talk about people's most basic elemental needs. So the more urgent discussion we need to be having, especially during this pandemic, is how to get individuals off the street and into places with roofs over their heads. Nathan agrees. So there are some people who, for a range of reasons, are forced to make home in places where they really don't have adequate shelter. But shelter in a lot of the sort of, you know, human rights discourses is a more common way of framing what is that thing that we all need and should have access to? Not a house or an apartment, but like what's the most basic way to describe the security and the safety of what we all as humans need and what we should treat as a human right. A human right that's not recognized as a right in the United States of America. But while shelter might not be enshrined in the Constitution alongside guarantees of free speech, assembly, and worship, Colin says it's an idea that many people have thought about through the ages. As an English professor, I would say that there's a long history of thinking about the kind of very basic shelter that Kristen is talking about as the thing that distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. So maybe the most famous example is King Lear on the Heath in Shakespeare's King Lear. Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks! Rage, blow! You cataracts and hurricanes, spout! So Lear has gone mad and he's out raving in the heath. He comes upon someone else who's pretending to be mad. And there's this kind of group of mad or possibly mad, crazy, possibly crazy, deeply upset and deeply traumatized people out in this storm on the heath. It's one of the most famous scenes in all of Shakespeare and therefore in all of English drama. Gracious, my lord, hard by here is a hovel. Some friendship will he lend you against the tempest. And there's an incredibly moving passage at the end where they kind of help each other to go into this little cave that they found. Here is a place, my lord. Enter the tyranny of the open night too rough for nature to endure. And the scene ends. And when they wake up the next day and Lear reemerges, he's still maybe not right in the head, but he's not also the traumatized creature that we had seen and creature kind of literally poor bare forked animal. I think Shakespeare refers to, right? Like without shelter, that's what we are, you know, we're unaccommodated. So that's just to say that there's a long history in European and Western, and I'm sure in other traditions of thinking of this as the basic thing that makes pretty much everything else possible. And if you think in a totally different way about survival games, uh, computer games that are popular right now, like Minecraft, for example, I mean, that's the first thing you have to do. You know, you will not make it through a night in Minecraft if you're unable to pull something around yourself so that you can make it through that first night. 
Given his work at the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, Nate views this idea of shelter as having both a material and a spiritual significance. When I was working on the west side of Chicago doing substance abuse and pastoral care counseling for very vulnerable members of the city of Chicago, I had one long-standing client for a few years who was always in and out of housing, often sleeping on porches and park benches, and that was a great challenge to her recovery from years of heroin addiction and her treatment for hepatitis and HIV. And one of my most moving experiences in that period of my life was going to visit her while she was in a state facility and about to die. And she asked that I bring a Bible and a fried Polish sausage from one particular place. And she asked me to read Psalm 91 from the Hebrew Scriptures, which begins, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And that, to me, speaks to perhaps an understanding of shelter that is both a concern and an awareness of the most physical needs of who we are as humans, but also perhaps in a theological lens might speak to something, some hope, some experience that connects us with the transcendent. Shelter for her was a kind of claiming of something transcendent as well as something so material, so basic, as real to you as a hot dog fried in Polish grease, but as transcendent as the scripture and the presence of God Almighty. So we told you that the Loose Foundation money helped fund housing for vulnerable residents of New Brunswick and central New Jersey in the midst of the pandemic. But a portion of the $150,000, along with a second grant of another $50,000, was also set aside for a variety of public humanities and arts projects, including the creation of this podcast. The thinking was that it would be important to archive this moment in time, document some of the lessons learned, and foster creative expression in response to COVID-19. This is where Kristen comes in. Remember, she's our resident historian of houselessness. I had been working on an oral history project called the Nielsen Street Project with Elijah's Promise, which is a soup kitchen and social services organization in New Brunswick. And I had been there, you know, a couple of days a week between January and early March of last year, early 2020, conducting oral histories with people who take their meals there, talking about their experiences with housing insecurity and food insecurity and houselessness and how they create means of survival and subsistence for themselves within the New Brunswick and Highland Park region. And as soon as the pandemic, you know, really kind of came to New Jersey and and we went into lockdown, one of my first thoughts was what's going to happen to them? These people who I've been talking with every other day for the past couple of months, what comes next? Where are they going to go? Shelters were closing or locking down. It was unclear what options they had. And I knew that many of them were looking forward to the warm weather when it would be safer for them to, you know, get back out into the parks, out of the train station and have a little bit more autonomy. And that was suddenly gone. 
Someone had to tell these people's stories, she thought, and who better than the individuals at the margins who've been most directly affected by COVID-19? We hear a lot, and we've especially heard a lot over the last year about, you know, we have existing inequities that are being exacerbated by pandemic conditions, and exactly how that's playing out. We hear that from social service organizations. We hear that from advocates. We hear it from politicians. We don't tend to actually hear that from the people who are experiencing it themselves. And that's not because they don't have brilliantly articulate things to say about it or perfectly cogent policy ideas. They do. It's just that no one's asking them and no one's listening or giving them a platform to actually share that. On the next episode of The Shelter Podcast, we'll hear more from Kristen and we'll listen to some of these people sharing their stories. It's just kind of this strange liminal space that I feel that I live in now during the pandemic because time is both meaningless and more stressful and meaningful than ever. Shelter is a co-production of the Rutgers University New Brunswick's Public History Program, the Rutgers Center for Cultural Analysis, New Brunswick Theological Seminary, and Collab Arts. Our editorial team includes Dan Swern, Colin Yeager, Nathan Jeremy Brink, and Kristen obrazel Colfin. We also had production help from Alajitan, and our theme music was made by Dave Seaman and Carlos Vasquez. The series is made with the generous support of the Henry Luz Foundation. We should explain that this podcast is just one small part of the overall shelter project. We've also gathered oral histories from community members and commissioned a diverse group of performance and visual artists to create original work in response to the housing crisis. We'll be discussing this in future episodes, but in the meantime, you can find out much more by visiting our website at shelternj.org. Follow or subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss it. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word on social media or tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Scott Gurian. And I'm Diana Molina. Thanks for listening.